This is Alex Mears, and welcome to Recon Labs Search and Acquire podcast, where we speak with veterans who have successfully transitioned from the military into owning and serving as CEOs in small businesses that they've acquired. Unlike traditional startup entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship through acquisition or search funds allow early and mid-career entrepreneurs to acquire and operate an existing small business. Our goal with this podcast is to share lessons learned from the many successful veteran searchers and entrepreneurs who have gone before you on this journey. And today we're hosting Matt Bauer. Matt spent six and a half years as an artillery officer in the Army with deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan before transitioning to finance and business school and ultimately launching a search and acquiring two industrial services companies in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2018. Matt shares some great insight into how he bought an analog services business and introduced technology and digital best practices, including how they replaced pen and paper with software and tablets for his service technicians in the field, and how they took two businesses with no website and an out-of-date website and transformed them into being leaders in their industry with their digital marketing and content strategy. If you're interested in how to drive value in an old line business by introducing technology, this discussion with Matt provides some great insights. Matt, well, thanks again for joining us today. Yeah, no problem, Alex. Happy to be here. So to get started, I think one of the archetypes that's loved by searchers is a, is a business with a great product or service offering with great customers, but one that's using antiquated internal systems where you can step up in as, as a new owner and CEO and kind of modernize the business. So I understand that's pretty much what you found, you know, great business. Uh can you talk a little bit about that? You know, the, you know, stepping into a business with it where there's not a single computer in, in the in the sites, uh, and what that was like modernizing the business. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, when we acquired American Scale, uh, it came with a sister company. Uh, it's called American Welding, and American Welding there was no computer uh, in the business. So, you know, these guys make uh, you know custom metal. Uh, products, custom fabrication, uh, on-site metal repair. Anyways, all the uh, fabrication work that they had done previously was basically stored in a notebook. And so, you know, assuming that person was present that day, then we would have the notebook that we could reference drawings. But, I mean, no computer whatsoever um, in American welding. I mean, on American scale side, I mean, all the uh, information, the, the work orders, uh, the scale, the, the test reports, basically the, the products that we provide to our customers, keep a copy of. Everything was in a filing cabinet. Um, and there was no digital repository in terms of all the, uh, equi- all the different scales and the types of equipment that we service. And so for literally like the first three to six months, I just was burning a path between my desk and that filing cabinet trying to access information. So so, so what did that, I mean, I'd love to talk about what that like, looks like after you acquired, what, what did that look like in diligence, you know, looking at a business outside in where, where so much was, was paper-based? And I know this happens all the time. So I, I've had, you know, this is a question we get from searchers all the time. I mean, I think we saw it as a, an opportunity in terms of a value creation. Uh, you know, we knew that uh, we wanted something that was uh, analog, if you will. And, you know, we wanted to be able to uh, apply some digital tools and use that as a way to make the organization more efficient, make it faster, uh, smoother, and, you know, in the long run, more profitable. So, I mean, actually, during diligence, I don't think that we maybe understood the scope of uh, all the data that, you know, our our technicians were uh, preparing. Um, You know, but again, like just literally in terms of processing those work orders that I mentioned, you know, on average, I think we do around 6,000 work orders per year. And the way that it worked is that, you know, technician goes out in the field, uh, does some work for a customer, hand writes on a work order what he did, you know, did or didn't do, gives the customer a copy and then comes back to the shop, turns in his work order. Well, we've got a, you know, one office that's totally remote from the headquarters. And then, you know, we've got several technicians that wouldn't come in for a week, 10 days. And so, we were mailing these paper-based uh, copies back and forth from our other office. Uh, one of the guys would lose his clipboard, and you'd have to recreate, you know, his his work for the last week or so. 
it, it was a, a pretty heavy lift to to go from you know again completely analog all paper based to you know we're we're moving in the right direction we're about 75 percent there on fully digital and what did that look like post acquisition was that something that you from day one were starting to make changes to or did you try to take you know, a few months just to get settled in the business and really understand both the business and the workflows and the employees before you started making those changes? Yeah, we we did the latter. So, I mean, we definitely wanted to understand the workflows. Uh, we wanted to understand the employees. You know, I think that there was a lot of hesitation from the employees when we first started. And so had we shown up not knowing anything about the industry, uh, not really knowing them, you know, their uh, traits, characteristics, personalities, uh, there would have been significant pushback. Um, but we waited and I think it was a perfect time. You know, we probably waited 12, 12 months to 18 months before we, you know, implemented the, the first tech solution. And I mean, now they, you know, they, the guys can't even imagine going back to paper-based. I mean, for the longest time they said, that's not going to work. You know, every excuse under the sun. And now, you, you know, you can't pry the tablet out of their hands. So, and how did you how did you kind of sell that internally? Because this is a challenge that we see, especially with you kind of skilled labor forces who are used to doing things one way, right? Oftentimes older. What did that What did that look like just internally as you were trying to roll those systems out? Uh, I think for one, we sort of flagged it. We said like this is coming, so we gave them the warning order, uh, and we reiterated it, you know, a handful of times. Uh, then we started to kind of get the either the key leaders or you know call it the power brokers, uh, those people that could convince everybody else to get on board. Started talking to them. Uh, when we started rolling it out, we did it somewhat selectively, so we only gave it to a couple of people that we knew a wanted to transition to digital and b would you know be a good advocate on our behalf. And I think we got quite a bit of goodwill uh, using that technique because you know several of the the guys were. By the time they got their tablet, you know, these other guys have been using it for a couple of months and, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to write anymore. You know, they're, they're, they couldn't spell well and they knew that there was autocorrect on the tablet. And I mean, again, now um, it, it's just, it's such a powerful solution for us. I mean, it, it's had a pretty substantial impact. So. Yeah. So it sounds like doing, doing some beta testing first with the kind of the, the early adopters within the company and then and yeah, building from there. And were you, did you ultimately end up customizing it all or at least incorporating feedback just based on how the, the technology was actually used in your business? We did. Yeah. Um, th there's a number of different, uh, you know, fields like data fields that you can customize. Um, we basically took, I'd say the off the shelf solution, the product, the, the software product, we're probably using 90 to 95% just standard as is. And then we've done some customization both on the front end for, for the technicians and the tablet feel and on the back end for, you know, more of the PC based uh, back office people. So, And did you do that all yourselves or did you bring in consultants or sort of implementation advisors? What, what did that look like? We had uh, consultants and implementation advisors both. Um, and we used, uh, you know, both parties. Uh, we still use uh we actually work directly with the, the product it's called WorkWave, and there's a specific um, software product that they have. Uh, we work directly with them to, you know, make small modifications here and there. Happy with that, you know, choice and, and the decisions we made to, to work with them. So, and Maybe stepping back just on the business that you actually did acquire, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what does American Scale do? What does American Welding do? Uh, and then I'd love to hear more about your search and how you found the business. Sure, sure. Uh, so American Scale, uh, we are a distributor and service company for industrial weighing, for, for scales. Uh, and scales can come in a variety of different sizes, shapes, applications, environments, industries. Uh, it's, it's pretty unique. They're very ubiquitous. Um, I mean, if you think about it, like the ancient Egyptians had the balances that they were using, you know, thousands of years ago to weigh crops in the field. Believe it or not, the technology hasn't changed that much, um, you know, in thousands of years. Uh, but basically, I mean, you know, what we say is we, we can weigh anything from uh, a milligram or even smaller with some of our uh, micro balances all the way up to rail cars uh, and weighing, you know, actual trains. 
So, I mean, you're talking, you know, six decimal places uh, out, uh, milligram micrograms up to, you know, three, 400 ton uh, rail cars. So pretty broad uh, range, uh, American scale. I mean, we have very little customer concentration, very little, um, you know, industry concentration. It's, it's pretty cool on any given day. Uh, you know, we can go out, start the morning at a, you know, pharmaceutical plant, then go to a, uh, poultry or pork processing facility. Um, you know, then go to the feed mill where the feed is being made to feed these animals and then go to a rock quarry or a landfill. So, I mean, we have such broad, uh, you know, end user base that like, it's pretty cool just to be able to go walk around these factories and just have a, a backdoor access to, you know, the American economy. So Yeah, it sounds sounds like a pretty pretty interesting window into, into most of the US economy. It's pretty cool. I mean, the Carolinas are are fairly heavy on food and beverage. So I mean we've got a lot of food and beverage. Uh solid waste and recycling. I mean, that's pretty much nationwide, you know, North America. Um every single county's got a landfill. Um you know, some, there's a lot of just general manufacturing in our area. So, you know, today I dropped off some parts at a uh, organization that basically uh, makes custom brewing, uh, like the, the entire automation system for like a, a brewery. And, you know, you've probably seen those stainless steel vats uh, around the brewing process. Well, they put load cells on it and then they can control that through, you know, a human machine and, and HMI is what it's called. But it's it's pretty cool and sort of having that access to just walk around and check out the plant. I mean, I was actually at, you know, one of my customers, I won't mention the name and, uh, it, you know, there, if I mentioned it, I mean, you, you would know it. I mean, it's a large conglomerate. They make food. This particular place makes like lasagnas and I'm talking lasagnas coming off the, the production line. I mean, they're zipping down. It's all automated. Uh, anyways, I, I walked around for like an hour, hour and a half and just took pictures of the whole plant. You know, it's kind of looking to the left and right of the scales where, where else we could help them. And then when I left the facility, um, I, I had about 30 scales on a trailer on my pickup. And then I pulled across the truck scale outside and the uh, security guard saw me take that photo of, you know, my truck with scales on a scale. And uh, she chief you know, freaked out and asked if I had, you know, the proper clearance. And it's a good thing she didn't ask to see my camera roll because it was, there's, you know, a hundred plus photos of this plant. It's on the plant. <laughs> yeah. And, and do you, do you manufacture the scales and then service them? Is that, is that the model? Uh, the majority of the, the scales that we uh, distribute, we do not manufacture. Um, I mean, we can actually build them with the uh, the welding company, but uh, the reason that we don't manufacture them is because there's a basically a regulatory body, and in order to be used uh, for, in commerce, like a what's called legal for trade, for the scale to be used in a legal for trade setting, it has to have been you know approved, stamped. Uh, and deemed uh, sufficient. And so, you know, if we were to make one, we, like I said, we definitely could. It wouldn't have that stamp of approval uh, to be legal for trade. So so then do you, do you partner with the manufacturers themselves and you act as a distributor or is it more you're just an aftermarket servicer who can who can service any any broad range of, of the manufacturer's scales? It's honestly, it's a little bit of both. Uh, so we've got, you know, relationships with a handful of different manufacturers uh, and we sell their products specifically. Um, and then on the other side of that coin, I mean, we're aftermarket. I mean, we can pretty much repair, replace, fix any anything that weighs. And, and, and you, a lot of search uh, searchers look for businesses, you know, with high recurring revenue or at least high repeat revenue. As you look at the, as, as you look at the business, how much is, is recurring? How much is repeat? How much is project? Do, do you have the sort of like long term recurring contracts to service or is it more? It's just a very regular repeat business, you know, servicing and re and replacing parts on the scales. So on on the scale side, I mean, you know, we basically have uh, scheduled maintenance agreements. Um, then we, you know, so, so the scheduled maintenance agreements are what I would consider recurring revenue. I mean, it's not contractual in the same way that like a piece of software would be, but it's these are long term sticky customer relationships. So you've got the scheduled maintenance. Then you've got unscheduled maintenance, which, you know, guy calls at seven in the morning. 
or we get calls at two and you know two a.m. and we have to dispatch somebody out there to to fix the equipment. Uh, so again, scheduled maintenance, uh, unscheduled maintenance. We also do large uh, capex projects. So think like uh, installing a, a scale to where a, a railroad car or a truck scale. Um, and, and then we do, you know, there's a couple of other service lines that we offer. Uh, we, we basically have a, a ton of weight. So we have probably, I don't know, 150,000 pounds of uh, test weight. And we can sling that under a crane uh, to test the crane to make sure that it's, you know, not deflecting and working properly. So, so it sounds like a pretty nice diversified types of revenue even w- within the business. It, it's pretty well diversified. I mean, you know, we've, you know, sort of one uh, data point. I mean, during COVID, uh, we didn't lay anybody off. We didn't, you know, not work one hour. Uh, we stayed, you know, very busy. Uh, and I think that, you know, school of thought is that if, uh, if the economy is not doing maybe as well, then there's going to be more service work uh, and people maybe aren't going to be buying new equipment and replacing their old stuff. But the, the good news is that the scales, I mean, one, they're either used in a, uh, to settle a transaction or two, they're used uh, in the actual manufacturing process like that, you know, that weight is needed to, to make something. And so it's, it's a critical piece of equipment for the most part. And, and as you look at kind of growing the business under your ownership, you know, are, are the constraints more just on the customer side, you know, g- going out and winning new work? Or is it, is it more on, I assume these are pretty skilled technicians who are doing these installs and, and, and repair? You know, it's, uh, I would say it's probably more on the customer side. Um, it, it, so I mentioned, you know, these long-term sticky relationships, awesome for playing defense, um, I mean, we, you know, we really have to mess up and, you know, I hate to say it, we have, uh, and, you know, we've repaired some relationships that were real close to the edge of losing, but on the flip side of that, you know, when you're playing offense for the most part, uh, if, if there's a scale that's already in place, I mean, it's in a manufacturing plant or it's a truck scale, that's in the ground, somebody, you know, another scale company put that equipment in and, and sold it to them. And, and unless they've, you know, it, it takes, you know, a customer, I'd say at least a year to a year and a half to fire unless you just do something flagrant, flagrantly wrong. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, right? The, the, the flip side of having such a sticky customer base is that when you're looking to grow, it's really the net new customers that you're go, trying to go out and fire and the net new installations that you're trying to find, right? Because it can be hard to dislodge competitors. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, we're fortunate, you know, in the Southeast, there is net new uh, and, you know, one area where I, we're, you know, punching above our weight in terms of uh, our competitors is on the digital front. I mean, probably not going to find another scale company uh, maybe as uh, advanced on just uh, our digital footprint, our digital presence, our online uh, advertising, that kind of stuff. And I mean, you know, from what we've seen, I think that uh, purchasing trends uh, are shifting, have shifted kind of all of the above. And so you're, you know, 20 years ago, a B2B, you know, somebody that working in a, a chicken plant, they just knew the person that they needed to call. Well, now they just type in on, you know, Google, like need a scale and American scale is the first one to come up. So. And I'm, I'm guessing if uh, if one of the businesses didn't have a computer, I'm, I'm assuming that was a lot of the work that you did post acquisition. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, you could say. I mean, the the website was in uh, poor shape. I mean, American Scales website was it existed, uh, but it was pretty rough. American Welding did not have a website, um, and so I mean, we've we've put a lot of time and effort into you know growing our digital uh, footprint digital presence. And, and what did that look like? In addition to, obviously, we normally see the, the normal like website refresh usually done within the first hundred days. In addition to that, how did you kind of think about, you know, doing online marketing for a business that historically had not? Sure. Um, I mean, so <clears throat> we, we also put a lot of effort into growing our uh, presence on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I think that that route has kind of uh, exhausted itself. But, you know, I, I, I use, I've used LinkedIn a lot over the last five, six, seven years. And uh, I know that, you know, even four or five years ago, you could really cut through uh, the noise and get to somebody if you sent them a message and were able to connect with them. Um, I think that you're that the power of that's 
kind of being lost right now just because there's a lot of spam on LinkedIn. But I mean, you know, we we grew our LinkedIn, you know, page for American scale. There were, you know, zero followers because the page didn't exist to over 2000 followers. Now we're actually starting to have customers, you know, they see our posts, they reach out, they say, oh, I saw you guys did this. You know, could, could you come take a look at my place? Um, so, I mean, it was a combination of, you know, refresh the website, put some time and effort in that. Uh, and then also, uh, you know, working on LinkedIn. I mean, we've got some other social media channels, but uh, it's not maybe as powerful as like it would be in a business to consumer uh, environment. Um, you know, the other thing we're doing is we're, we're really leaning into uh, creating content. Uh, we want to be like the trusted voice in the scale industry. Um, you know, I wish we had more articles written. We, you know, we're, it's every day kind of working on it, chipping away at it. But, you know, our goal is to basically be that, that trusted uh, source of information. So, you know, whether or not somebody buys from us, I mean, the intent is that, that they would eventually, but I, first of all, I want to just get them to, onto my webpage so that they can look at all the different stuff that they might need. And is that are, are you leading those efforts? Is that is that, you know, w- one of the many hats you're wearing right now or or have you hired someone internally or using external resources to do that? Yeah, uh, actually, Chris, my business partner, leads that effort. So um, very plugged in. I mean, he, his background, he worked he was closer to, say, digital marketing and that kind of stuff than I was. Um, I think, you know, even more interested in it. So. Still, you know, being done by, you know, one of the partners, um, one of the bosses. But I think, you know, over time, that would be something that eventually we would probably either outsource or hire someone internally to, to manage. So let's re- rewind the tape a little bit. I'd love to hear just about more about your background, decision to join the military uh, and how you learned sure. about ETA. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, from uh, Illinois, uh, grew up small farm town. And basically, uh, you know, played sports in high school growing up, but uh, wasn't good enough to, I, you know, the, the sport that I committed to was ice hockey and I wasn't going to play in college. And so, you know, I had a decent uh, background, I guess, in terms of education. Um, and so I decided that I was going to go to, I went to the University of Illinois and studied mechanical engineering there. And uh, before I went, my, you know, my parents told me, my dad said, hey, uh, just so you know, you're, you're responsible to pay for your own school. And I mean, he, I, he had flagged that to me long enough in advance that I knew that that was coming as well. Um, anyways, I showed up at U of I, uh, again, you know, mechanical engineer. I had to go two weeks early because I did so poorly on my, uh, at my math placement exams. Uh, so I went, you know, two weeks before everybody else my freshman year, took my uh, little algebra refresher class and uh, it was walking by the armory and saw the, you know, Army ROTC. Um, you know, they had scholarships available, completely academic based, and I could apply for. And if I received that scholarship, then it was a state tuition waiver. Um, you know, they would cover my tuition for the first two years. And I wouldn't have any uh, requirement to the military. I could decide at the end of my sophomore year, like, hey, appreciate it, but not for me. And so to be honest, I mean, I I joined sort of intending to uh, do it for the two years and then figure out how I was going to pay for the rest of my school. Um, But, you know, after that second year, I just had a lot of friends in ROTC. Just felt it it felt right to to stay in and commit. so basically stayed in ROTC, did it for, uh, you know, for a little over, I did an extra semester in college, so four and a half years, and then uh, commissioned January of 2007, started active duty. And what did you, what did you do, uh, active duty? Uh, I was a field artillery officer, and so uh, my first, you know, actual unit was a mechanized uh, artillery unit, mechanized battalion, it was in a... Uh, heavy uh, brigade combat team. So I was in 2nd Brigade 4th Infantry out of uh, Fort Carson, Colorado. Uh, Started as the fire direction officer, so basically controlling fires for our tracked uh, howitzers. And then uh, from there went into, you know, I was platoon leader, uh, deployed to Iraq in 2008 Uh, as a platoon leader. We were, you know, as I jokingly tell friends, we were cheap infantry. Uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't take our howitzers on the deployment. So, 
um, lived on a patrol base there out in a you know, small Iraqi village with a handful of uh, different you know, local police officers and, and the Iraqi army. Um, <clears throat> came back from you know, my Iraqi deployment and uh, was just really drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, went over to the CAF squadron uh, in the same brigade that I was in. I stayed there for six months or so as the uh, squadron FSO. And then I went to the maneuver uh, captain's career course. Um, so went to that, uh, was with a bunch of infantry and armor guys. I actually went to it at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Um, and then uh, that was about six months. And then I went from there to uh, an aviation brigade in the 101st Airborne. And I was in the uh, CAV squadron again. I was the squadron FSO. Um, and we deployed to Afghanistan uh, 2011 and, you know, reorganized as a task force. And we had two uh, companies of uh, OH-58 Delta, the Kiowa Warrior Helicopters. We had a company of uh, Apaches and then we had two Blackhawks that were uh, take on to our organization. So we basically owned the Blackhawks. Um, and we were in Kandahar province and 2011, I don't think it was as sporty as say 2010 was, but it was, it was, you know, full on, uh, for that whole summer, uh, against the Taliban. So, and then how, how did you ultimately decide to, to transition out and, and what, what did that decision look like? You know, I knew, uh, again, going into it, I didn't really plan on, you know, being a career, uh, army officer, um, sort of, I didn't intend on staying and, uh, just before that second deployment, my dad sort of unexpectedly passed away. So I went on that deployment being like, all right, you know, I, I can't get killed. Like first one, not that you want to, but like risk wasn't as high. So anyways, I came back from that deployment and I knew, uh, that I was, I actually planned on going to grad school. And so I took, uh, again, I was either thinking go down the, the master's degree in engineering or uh, get a business degree. I, I leaned very heavily towards the business degree, just, just sort of felt like that was the right thing. So I actually took the GMAT uh, the first time uh, in Kandahar. Um, so, so yeah, I was- I didn't, you know, I didn't know they offered the GMAT in Kandahar back then. <laughs> oh yeah, they did. Uh, you know, and I should have probably taken advantage of that and had somebody else take it for me with my ID because uh, I took it a couple more times after that. But yeah, I took it the first time in Kandahar in like the fall of, 2011. And had you, had you heard at all about entrepreneurship through acquisition or when did you first learn about that? I hadn't, um, you know, I, I, my dad, uh, owned his own business. Both my grandfathers owned their own businesses. Um, I think it was just the, the entrepreneurial, uh, gene was already there. Um, and so, you know, I honestly kind of went to business school with the intent of learning, you know, finance, accounting, some of these business principles to, I think, I don't know if it was at the, you know, forefront of my mind consciously to, to do something entrepreneurial, but I, yeah, I did always kind of plan on, you know, owning my own thing. Um, and so, you know, basically went to grad school, um, worked, you know, a couple of different jobs, uh, post grad school and, you know, then sort of felt like the time was right. I mean, before I actually quit my, you know, day job and started, uh, you know, ETA, I, I did a lot of research. I mean, I probably reached out to a hundred, uh, folks that had done the search fund and they were at all different stages in the life cycle from, you know, people that were either a thinking about it, hadn't even started to, okay, I've, I've started, I'm searching to, um, you know, an op, you know, I'm an operator, I'm running a business now. I talked to people that failed in search funds as in like bought a company and folded. I talked to people that just crushed it. Um, so I, I really tried to educate myself on that and uh, to, to enable myself to make the best decision possible. So it sounds like you did quite a bit of research talking, talking to a hundred searchers or so. I was going to say, I probably spent 12 to 18 months uh, just basically preparing to make the decision to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this full time. And what was it that ultimately got you across the finish line to, to launch a search? Yeah, I was, uh, so I went to grad school in the UK. I was living in London and, um, 
I was working in finance, you know, right in the heart of uh, London, right in Mayfair. And uh, I was working pretty insane hours. And I started just thinking to myself, you know, compensation is basically based on, you know, risk reward. And my thought process was like, okay, I'm I'm being compensated fairly. Um, I short of some major external event or myself doing something really, really stupid, I didn't think I would get, you know, fired. And then I thought, okay, well, I'm not really taking any risk then. And so I just, I I came to the conclusion that like, I wasn't going to work any less hard, uh, regardless of whether or not I was doing it for myself or for somebody else, I would always work as hard as, you know, I could. So I I thought like, I might as well just take on more risk and, you know, have the potential for that upside. Um, it was a combination of that. And then also, uh, my wife now, she was my fiance. Then we, you know, she's from the States or, or grew up here most of her life. We basically, we were kind of ready to, uh, come back to the U S and, you know, I figured if I was going to move back to the States, like this would be the time to try it. So you followed the the well-worn path of finance guys in London buying, uh, welding businesses in North Carolina. Is that yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, going from, you know, wearing a suit and tie, you know, people that are writing $300 million checks to standing in, you know, pig up to my knees, <laughs> uh, talking to some farmer, you know, straw hanging out of his mouth. How, honestly, how did you find that transition? Because that is, you know, we, we, we work with a lot of, you know, veterans, especially who work in, in finance and in banking, who are interested in making the leap. Can you talk a little bit about Kind of what, what were your expectations making the jump to small business ownership? And then what, how, how has it differed, you know, the reality of it versus what you expected? I actually think the, the reality is sort of what I was expecting. I mean, just having seen it. Um, but I do. I mean, I specifically remember. I mean, again, I grew up in a you know, farming community, like small town, very blue collar. And then, you know, in the army, even as an officer, I mean, you, yeah, you get your hands dirty, you know, but you're not in the engine bay, like tearing everything apart, uh, maybe doing all the grunt work. And so, and then, you know, working in a very white collar job, uh, you know, wearing a suit and tie to work every day, coming back, it, it took me a while to like, uh, get back to my, you know, call it blue collar roots. Like it took a minute to, uh, there's a lot of industrial stuff around me here and, I had had that exposure already and I knew what most of it was, but it, it took me probably a year for all of it to kind of like click back in and uh, make sense. Um, so it was, it was, uh, it's an awkward transition. I mean, you know, even today, like sometimes we go meet with like our, our uh, professional services, our, the lawyers, the bankers, whatever. And I mean, you know, wear a suit, no problem. And then, come back and put on like my cargo pants and my, uh, you know, t-shirt with a, a pocket in it so I can hold my tools. So that's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's great. And so maybe on, on the search itself, you know, you came back from London and you decided to do a self-funded search. Can you talk about, you know, were there geographies, industries you were, you were interested in looking in? Yeah. So, I mean, my, uh, my partner, uh, he was in the army with me. Uh, he, you know, deployed to Afghanistan that's where we met. And so we had known each other for, you know, five, six, seven years. Um, geographically, we, we wanted to live in the Southeast. Uh, I mean, he's from the Southeast and then I spent a good deal of my time uh, here just when I was in the military. So we basically said, you know, geographically, we want to be in the Southeast. We were, somewhat opportunistic on the industry. Uh, I, I think if it, you know, clearly didn't make sense that we wouldn't really pursue it, but if it was sort of on the margins, we looked at, you know, a lot of different industry, interesting things. Um, <clears throat> you know, but similar to how like, uh, I had reached out to, you know, called a hundred different searchers. I mean, we basically worked two jobs before we quit our, our previous, you know, jobs. I mean, when we, you know, moved, we relocated our families to Charlotte and started searching. I mean, we were literally searching from like day one. Like we already had our CRM selected. We already had a list of brokers, you know, 100, 200 deep. Uh, we were already like sending emails, uh, signing for SIMs and, and reviewing stuff. So, I mean, we had most of the building blocks in place by the time we actually hit go and, and started searching. I think that's an incredibly important point. Wh- whether you're doing self-funded or a traditional search, 
yeah. from day one, you are on the clock, right? You are, you are, you are burning capital while you're looking for a business. So to the extent, you know, the more work you can do in advance, so you can, as you said, you can turn on the lights day one and you are literally out talking to owners as opposed to, you know, trying to figure out how to set up a CRM system or, or, you know, whatever it is, uh, in the planning stages. I, I think that's incredibly valuable. Yeah. Yeah. It, it paid off uh, for sure. So. And then on your search, did you ultimately do more of a brokered model, you know, reaching out to brokers in the areas, or did you try to do some proprietary as well? Uh, we did both. Um, and we kind of split it. Uh, and so I was doing more of the proprietary and, and Chris was doing more of the brokered approach. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we ultimately found American scale was through a broker, but you know, I, I'm a firm believer that, uh, both, uh, courses of action can work. Uh, I, I do think it, it really depends on the searcher's timeline. I mean, if you've got a pretty long timeline, uh, as in like two plus years, you I think that you can be very uh, effective doing a uh, proprietary search. If you've got, you know, narrow geography that you're looking in or, you know, not as long of a timeline, I think you have to just but open the floodgates and anything that comes in, you know, take a look at it. So. And any, any best practices that you found worked well on both the brokered side and the, the proprietary outreach side? I mean, we, one sort of principle I think that we implemented during the search and continue to do so today is we're pretty aggressive in terms of like uh, speed of response Uh so, you know, when I think we were the first ones to see this, you know, American scale, we didn't know what it was at the time, but we were the first ones to, to see that opportunity on, you know, like biz buy sell or whatever it was on. So we literally replied first and, uh, you know, we're fortunate that we did so. Um, I, you know, on the, the proprietary side, I mean, we put in uh, stickers from, you know, the 101st Airborne uh, and, again, tied it to our military roots. I mean, I kind of hate doing that, but at the same time, I, I still do it all the time. You know, oh, I was in the Army. Can you give me a discount? Or, you know, like just trying to build rapport. I mean, I, I think people still uh, appreciate that, you know, quite a bit. And, you know, they, they business owners, I mean, in general, I think people respect the military and, and know that, you know, it sort of did something that was bigger than you. So. Yeah, we, we agree entirely. And, and, you know, don't feel at all like it's, you you know, it's, it's your leveraging what you did before to, to build credibility with sellers. Right. And so. That, that's that, pretty much it. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it's absolutely, I mean, it, it's, it is strictly, you know, credibility kind of straight off the street and, I mean, use it to your advantage. I mean, other people don't have that. And, you know, it's true. So so can you walk through with American Scale, what did that process look like? So you were the first to respond uh, to, to the posting on, on the brokerage site. What what did that look like from there? So our, our particular one was, uh, I think they're all probably unique. I think every deal has its own twists and turns. Um, you know, our broker was uh, very involved. Uh, and it was, I think, a, a, it was the largest deal she had ever done. So I don't know that it's kind of like the blind leading the blind <laughs> on on all things. Uh, I mean, we had a pretty good idea what we needed to do. You have a checklist. I mean, figure it out, right? Sink or swim. And so we were progressing. Uh, she was trying to, like, corral us and then also corral the old owners of American Scale they were, you know, they had no idea. They, you know, they were technicians for 20 years and then they, you know, went off on their own and built a company and ran that for 20 years. So the, you know, again, like uh, country smart, as we say, but uh, in terms of, you know, conducting a financial transaction M&A, um, I think everybody was, it was new to all of us. So. And, and any resources you were able to use in that process just to get yourself smart? There's, you know, I think um, there's a handful of just different ETA uh, resources. Uh, the, the There's the actual book from uh, HBR, I think. Um, you know, uh, Jim Stein Sharp had several, you know, good articles. Uh, we had gone to the Stanford uh, Search Fund Conference in 2017, met several good folks there. 
uh, we reached out and talked to a handful of lawyers, you know, basically all these different professional services. We talked to, you know, legal counsel. We interviewed five or 10. But you learn a lot from, say, the first one to the 10th one. You, you learn quite a bit. We did the same thing with uh, accountants uh, to do the quality of earnings. You know, talk to five or 10 of them. Well, you're going to know a whole lot more by the 10th person you talk to than the very first one. So. And on the capital raising side, the, the, the investor side, what, what did that look like for you? Because obviously that's, that's another mean, plate you have to keep spinning as well, right, while you're doing diligence and everything else. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would, I mean, one thing that I think that um, <clears throat> folks should do and I highly recommend is, yeah, you should be building your investor base in parallel with searching for, you know, the deal. Um, one thing that I was told before and didn't really know how true it was is that, like, if you find a good deal, like, the money will be there. From my experience, I, I think that's 100% true. Uh, but that, that's not a substitute for, you know, it, the same networking that's required to uh, either find a brokered or proprietary deal is the, the exact same principles that, you know, you have to apply to to meet people to potentially invest in you and a business. And so I think as long as you're doing, you know, dual tracking those things, that that would give you plenty of lead time to um, find investors and, and bring them on board. And on the seller side, what did that look like in terms of your initial interactions with the sellers and, and any pointers based on your experience for, for, for other searchers who are out there talking to, to business owners? I mean, at the end of the day, like, I think you have to read the cues of the individual sellers. Um, no two are the same. Uh, you know, they all have uh, different reasons for why they may or may not be, you know, wanting to part with their business. Um, we were pretty fortunate. So there were three sellers. Two of the three were, you know, former military. Um, you know, they, they were definitely ready to go. It wasn't like a, you know, they don't want to retire type of thing. From, you know, day one, building rapport and credibility with them was, you know, one of the most important things. I mean, I think, you know, now I feel a lot more comfortable going to, say, a business owner uh, that's 50 or 60 years old and being like, hey, sell me your company. Because I can say, hey, I, I've done it. Like, you know, I have proof. Well, before you are able to say that, I mean, you, you have your military experience or, you know, your other professional experience that you can lean on as, as credibility. You just have to build rapport with that owner and really understand what makes them tick. Why do they want to, you know, sell their business? And, you know, why are you the right person uh, for them to sell it to? So. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great advice. You know, that, Especially, I, I found with, with people with finance backgrounds, they can think about an M and A transaction more as a as a as a math equation and and a lot of numbers. And at the end of the day, as you said, it all just comes down to that personal rapport that you ultimately have. It's a tremendously emotional decision for all parties, uh, yeah. especially a seller who's you know selling kind of their life's work in many cases. I think that was one thing that I maybe didn't appreciate enough uh, coming out of the MBA, working in you know the white collar finance role. Just how you described it. I mean, it was kind of a, uh, oh, it's a deal, you know, look at the number, do the numbers add up? Well, I mean, depending on the size of the business that, you know, someone's to purchase, like, that's not what the owners think about. I mean, they, you know, bootstrapped it probably. They probably never, you know, hardly ever been uh, in debt uh, or didn't take on a lot of debt, I should say. I actually have one thing sort of fitting uh, randomly on my computer. Um, I'm just going to read it because I, I didn't have it for this, but it's, it's, I think it's fitting now. It's, it's actually talking about a, uh, it's like an institutional, uh, it's not a private equity group, but it's a, a service provider. It's an alternative investment group. And the CEO of that uh, firm said, uh, he says the word deal, the word deal is in quotation marks. Uh, reduces the ownership of a company which has executives, employees, a strategy, and a mission to a one-time event. The CEO wants the employees of his firm to act like they are owners of the business, not merely doers of deals. So basically, this guy uh, forbid, they can't say the word deal anymore. And he said, you know, preferred vocabulary includes stewardship, governance, strategy, culture, entrepreneurship, operational excellence and sustainability. Uh, I guess 
some employees have resorted to using the word investment as a substitute. So, I mean, they're getting around it still. But I mean, you know, I know that when we first started, like I was like kind of clinical and, oh, I, I, we raised two billion, you know, euro. And I, like, I just remember telling an owner that in their eyes, it just couldn't even fathom, you know, like, what is it? They're looking at me like, what is this dude talking about? <laughs> so that, that really resonates with you. The, just, just making sure you're, you're kind of meeting the, the seller on, on their terms. And it, it is not a, this is not a corporate finance transaction for, for the vast majority of sellers. Absolutely. I mean, just, just be a normal person. I mean, if you, you know, went to grad school, got an MBA or something like that, like, don't forget it, but like, you know, don't go in rocking that on your sleeve as though you, you, you've solved all of life's mysteries. I mean, just be a normal person, uh, you know, and, and try to connect with people, treat people like you'd like to be treated. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. So I, I have to ask, cause this happens in, in, in every deal I've ever seen. What were some of the biggest surprises, both positive and negative, after stepping into the ownership and the and the CEO role versus what you expected in diligence? Well, I mean, you know, I think a lot of these small companies don't necessarily want the prospective buyers to meet the employees. Uh, and that was the case. And they told, you know, the old owners told us that there is a you know second tier uh, management in place. Um, there was not, <laughs> I mean, there were people that were, were trying, but I mean, they hadn't been trained and uh, not no fault of their own. Uh, it, it's just the, the old owners were doers and they told everybody what to do. Well, it, there were a lot of challenges initially. I mean, sometimes I, I look back now cause we've got a pretty good grip on what's going on and you know, we, we wouldn't even necessarily need this uh, digital solution now because we, we generally know. Well, that's I, I, almost shocking that we did anything for the first six months. Uh, I mean, we just had no idea what was going on. I mean, the guys could have just totally pulled the wool over our eyes and we would have not known any different. So we've had, a, you know, some unique uh, employee challenges. Um, I'd love to, you know, if, if anybody gives me a call, I, I'll go into detail on, you know, more of that. Uh, pretty crazy stuff, stuff that you would think that, you know, when you're like, at least when I was in the army, I thought that some of the employee or, or challenges we had from soldiers would not, I would never experience that on the real world. But well, I'm here to tell you that you will, you know, and they're crazy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, just the, the, the fact that there wasn't really call it that second tier of management, that there was so much tribal information, th- those kind of things made it challenging. Uh, it, we had a good culture, but there were some, some you know, parts that we had to cut out. Uh, that w- that took a long time and some challenge. You know, I, I uh, probably didn't appreciate all the soft skills that, you know, are really required. Because, I mean, again, you probably check the box on you know, able to, to handle the operations, able to do the accounting, the P&L. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's pretty basic. It's the, the soft skills that, you know, you got to win over your employees and, and get them to appreciate you, trust you, you know, want to excel. I think that's completely consistent with probably the number one challenge that we see searchers finding when they step into, into small businesses is just that, is that so so much of the small business revolved around the former owner or, or owners and having to sort of recreate that either with, you know, additional training, additional management, you know, additional hires, or just taking more of that on themselves. We pretty much did literally all of the above. I mean, it, it, you know, we hired people, we're still hiring. Uh, we're, I mean, again, there were three owners. We replaced it with two. Um, we did a lot. I mean, literally the first, yeah, I mentioned the, the analog, you know, work orders, like the paper-based, I would literally have, you know, a stack two, three inches tall that I'd have to work through over the weekends. And at the time, you know, I didn't know what the parts actually were. We didn't have like a, a catalog for the pricing. Uh, the pricing was inconsistent between the two offices. And so, you know, I, we, I probably worked 24 seven for the first year, 18 months. Um, and that, you know, that, that has slowed down, 
in terms of don't have to be quite as uh, involved. Um, and, and did you ultimately lean on the, the former sellers, the former owners to help institutionalize some of the tribal knowledge or document it? Or, or what did that look like? Because we see that that can be really a can oftentimes be a great resource and others times the exact opposite. So just curious what your experience was. Uh, we have leaned on them. Uh, I mean, we've got a great relationship with them, so we still talk to uh, the three of them, you know, quite a bit. One of them actually still goes out and works with us. Uh, he, he, the one that I mentioned that still goes and does stuff. I mean, he's actually a great resource for that tribal knowledge. Um, you know, he's an old Marine, uh, worked on, you know, electronics and aviation aircraft. Um, you know, we've captured a lot of the information from him, uh, and, you know, save that for like training. Uh, I also basically went through all of our service contracts with the, the old owners and, you know, spent, it probably took two to three months going through the, you know, few hundred, five, 600 service contracts that we have. Uh, but like to really try to understand like the equipment that we have in the field that we service, like basically what's the make and model of it. Cause if we know the make and model, then we know all the components and we can plan, we can, you know, do demand forecasting for inventory. Um, so there, there was a lot of, again, you know, Oh, well that customer uh, sells me meat on the side. Uh, and, you know, I, I get, I give them a really good deal or, well, I always go by him on my way home from work. And so I don't usually charge him the full rate to it. There was so much of that that, I mean, for the first six to eight months, we're like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and so was that was that literally just sitting sitting down with a pen and paper or, or just taking yeah. notes ac- across from the owners and just walking through kind of customer by customer? Yeah. I mean, you know, the <clears throat> going through the, the service contracts, I mean, I literally would ride with them, uh, you know, for we'd be going to a service call or something like that, going to do a project. It'd be two hours away. Well, I'd, I'd let them drive. And I would ride and I'd be taking notes in my laptop the entire way. I mean, we had uh, a lot of the information uh, in somewhat of a digital format, but not, you know, I wasn't quite there. But we cleaned all that up and then added all those notes. Um, And then just on, you know, the individual kind of unique customers, that was one of those things that just took a long time. I mean, we still have customers now that, that call the old owners, though. I mean, we, we still pay for their cell phones because, I mean, they're, you know, three plus years later, they're still calling them. They know they're not involved, but they just they were friends for 20 years. So they're like, ah, I'm just going to call you. And, and then they call, you know, one of us and, hey, so-and-so has got an issue. Can you guys go take care of it? So. Uh, it speaks it speaks to what you mentioned earlier, which is ha- having that strong relationship with the sellers, even post acquisition, and trying to make sure it it can always be a difficult time when, during those transitions. So, so maintaining that relationship really, really, I think, pays dividends. Yeah, I would agree. And so, as you look now, having been in, the, in you know in the, in the the ownership seat for three years or so, what are some of the biggest successes or things you're most pleased with? that, that, that you've, you have accomplished with, with the business since you took over? I mean, I think for one, we've, you know, grown it 10 to 15% each year. Um, we've added more people. We've empowered, you know, these second tier managers. I mean, we've actually trained them. And uh, I think probably one of the things I'm most proud of is like, we're, it feels like we're getting the people in the right seats uh, on the bus and like, they're all pretty motivated. Like they want to do, you know, big stuff too. And it's nice to um, find, you know, people that <clears throat> want to contribute or, or were already here and just it, it, for some reason or another, it wasn't the right spot and, you know, get people kind of motivated in, in the right spot and then just let them take off and, and run with it. So that's been pretty awesome. Um, you know, again, the, the growth that we did, that's been, you know, pretty impressive uh, I think that we did a good job of just integrating into the industry in general. You know, we've talked to all the manufacturers. There's hundreds of these, you know, scale businesses. Uh, we've talked to most of the owners, at least if they're adjacent to us on a border, we've definitely talked to them. We've probably actually talked to most of them like east of the Mississippi anyways. Um, it's a small industry and like most people know who we are uh, because, you know, we're, changing things up a little bit, I guess. And on the flip side, 
what have been the biggest challenges that that you may not have foreseen as, as an owner and CEO of a small business? Yeah, I, you know, I hate to say it because it's like the go-to, but it's the it's the personnel. I mean, love it or hate it, like it, it comes with the territory, and you know, everybody's problem becomes kind of your problem. Um, and, and you know, you, you want to take care of your your employees. Uh, you you know, you built that trust, that rapport, that bond. Like. It's almost like sometimes it, it feels like a, a little almost parental. I mean, you know, you want to kind of advise them and think about things outside of work, you know, in life. Like, how would you do this? How would you do that? You know, maybe you should save that money and not go buy this unnecessary thing and put it into a fund for your child's, you know, college or or for them to go to trade school. It doesn't have to be college, you know, but something like I, I, I've definitely been shocked at uh and I don't think it's unique to say our guys here, uh, guys and gals, I, I, I'm shocked at the financial, uh, I mean, just illiteracy uh, that I see on a day-to-day basis. I mean, people just buy just absolutely unnecessary stuff. And again, not necessarily uh, my people here, but just the, a lot of my customers, you know, just in general, it's it's crazy what, you know, waste our money on. And did you find the leadership training in the military has helped with, with that basic management, basic leadership required to run a small business? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, the military just teaches you like, you know, what's the mission? What are the key tasks? What's the end state? And it gives you the opportunity to like, you know, you have to do something, you know, you have to treat people fairly in order to achieve it. And, I think that the, the, the military training, like the, I've relied on that way more than anything else uh, since taking over. I mean, I know in the military you can kind of pull rank, but you can't even necessarily do that. You have to sort of win people over through trust and and rapport and things like that. And so I, I know one time we were working, uh, one of my technicians and I were working on a project. And we'd probably been there like four or five times. You know, it's one of those sticky relationships that I mentioned. Well, by the fifth time, if you haven't fixed it, like it's not so sticky. And, uh, you know, he and I were up there and it was getting close to like four or five o'clock. And we finally like we determined that we didn't have anything that we actually needed to fix it. But it was all like locally procurable if we could, you know, get the equipment before, say, five or six p.m. We were like three hours from our shop. Anyways, we, you know, we found a thousand foot spool of cable that we needed, you know, we, we bought that and, and then we needed like a 40 foot extension ladder and we were getting ready to drive all over Norfolk, Virginia to find it. Well, the customer had one. So then we go back and, you know, every stop of the way, something was working against us. The ladder broke, you know, and, and then there was a truck parked in the way and then you know, it was cold and raining and like, literally we left that job site at like midnight, but you know, we got it done. And I think that's probably like a, you know, stick to itness of the military. Yeah. It's, it's, it sounds like a lot of my time in the military. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. So a- any other general advice for prospective searchers who are interested in pursuing this path, whether, you know, during the search phase or, or post acquisition? I mean, I think, uh, well, first of all, like, you know, during the search phase, you know, I think that people get you know wrapped around their axle there. And I think that's like the most important part or doing the deal. Very important. But I mean, at the end of the day, those are, you know, if it's a 10, 15 year, you know, lifespan of this, you know, opportunity, you're looking at maybe 10%, not even 5% of your total time would be spent on that. So, you know, you got to be prepared for the the longer, you know, commitment of actually operating it. I think patience is probably another, you know, having patience. I don't have a lot. And, uh, you know, I want to, uh, you know, big aspirations to say grow the business and, and, you know, do cool things in the industry. And like, if I pushed everybody to try to, you know, keep up with my pace, then like, I think everybody would quit, you know, or a lot. And 
took me a long time to figure that out, uh, to maybe have a little bit more patience, be a little bit more compassionate. But like, I think that those things are, are super important. And, you know, without that, you, you'll be, it'll be rough. Yeah. That, that's very consistent with what, with what we've seen. So, well, Matt re- really do appreciate your taking the time. If any, if anyone is interested in learning more, do you mind if they, is there a good way to reach out to you or to just get more information? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, my, you know, cell phone is probably best. Uh, it's my work phone. So I answer it, you know, 24 seven. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't screen calls based on numbers cause my customers call from all kinds of weird numbers. Uh, but my work phone, uh, cell phone number is a seven zero four, uh, two, two, three, zero eight three four and then happy to give my email out as well i mean i can do it here or um if there's a better way to distribute Great. it yeah we can we can put it in the show notes so people can follow up that way as well okay yeah i mean i i'm i, I really enjoy connecting with people uh talking to new people uh happy to give people you know my you know thoughts and two cents and they can take it for what it's worth but i you know at the end of the day i think that like whether you buy a business or whether you go work somewhere or sort of the baseline is kind of what, you know, like you have to have that as the hurdle, but after that, it's all who, you know, like connecting with people and and building those relationships are, are the way to do it. I think. Absolutely. And Matt, look, we realize we appreciate how how busy you are building the business and really do, you know, are are thankful you took the time to, to share the background. So, so really do appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, Alex. Uh, happy to join, and sorry we couldn't make it to work last week. I was at a rock quarry, and uh, my service wasn't great. I mean, I, I still work in the truck, and you know, but it would have been tough. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, thanks, thanks very much, Matt. Thank you. If you are interested in learning more about entrepreneurship through acquisition and search funds or small business ownership more broadly, please reach out. You can find us at www.searchacquire.org or email me, Alex Mears, at info at searchacquire.org. Thanks for listening and please share with any prospective entrepreneurs who you think could benefit.